All right. So, uh, in my um, as my voice was fading last week and is uh, somewhat better this week, um, I neglected to tell you what psalms we were going to be talking about today. Uh, I said that we weren't necessarily going to be going in numerical order uh, through the psalms, but as it turns out, that's what we're doing uh, at least for today. So we are going to be in Psalm chapter three and Psalm chapter or Psalm four, I, I should say. Um, These first uh, four psalms uh, highlight not only the uh, activity of the writer of the psalms, but also the activity of the editor that collected the psalms and decided how they were going to be arranged. Um, Maybe I should just, can you all hear me okay? Am I too loud? Okay, I literally can't hear what I'm saying. (laughs) Okay. Um, Which is a really interesting experience. Um, it's like having noise-canceling headphones in uh, as you're talking to people. So uh, we saw that uh, Psalm 1 was just a reminder of all of the benefits that a person gets from really uh, delighting in the Lord, delighting in the law of the Lord. Um, that instruction just, just really set the, the pace, uh, contrasting uh, how is it when you walk in God's ways versus how uh, things might be if you didn't walk in God's ways. Last week, we looked at uh, kind of the, the bookend of that, that uh, we have a messianic psalm, a psalm about God's anointing, uh, his anointed rather, uh, and the ultimate uh, victory and the ultimate reign that comes in that. Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are really interesting because uh, there are a lot of firsts with Psalm 3, which I'll point out. But many people have classified Psalm 3 as a mourning psalm. Not mourning as in the death of someone, but like in the morning. Uh, a psalm that you might consider as you start your day. And in fact, we, we have some, um, uh, it'll, it'll be obvious why it's called that. And again, credit to the editor, Psalm 4 is often called an evening psalm, uh, which would highlight uh, some of the things you might be thinking at the end of your day. And so it's very appropriate that the editor has put those two psalms uh, together, uh, and I think you'll, you'll see how that works. Uh, just to call out uh, a couple of firsts for Psalm 3, which is, of course, where we'll start. Uh, the superscription in, in my text says, A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So there's several firsts uh, with this. Uh, this is the first time that the word psalm is used. Uh, so uh, that would indicate that this poem was designed to be uh, accompanied by music. Um, this is the first time we have a psalm attributed to David. And then this is the first time we have a historical uh, superscription to say, uh, what was the occasion for this psalm? And it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Uh, so that's... That's interesting. Uh, As I read this, um, it struck me this is, uh, as as many psalms are, this is really grounded in a person's day-to-day experience. And so we have this setting that takes us to what was going on when Absalom fled, or rather when David fled from Absalom, his son. 
You can read all about this in 2 Samuel. We, it hasn't been that long that we covered this. But you'll recall about the middle of Samuel, uh, rather the middle of 2 Samuel, things start to go crazy. Uh, there's some big victories that David has uh, in chapter 11. There's uh, his fall with Bathsheba. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, conflict. We have the uh, rape of Tamar. Uh, Absalom seeks revenge for that rape uh, several years later. Um, uh, David and Absalom are estranged uh, uh, through some provoking. Uh, David somewhat accepts Absalom back, but never all the way. We see David's passivity at this. We talked about uh, how there are some times when he was just not a great dad. He might have been a great king, but there are times he wasn't a great dad. And how he missed a lot of opportunities there on how he could have maybe properly corrected Absalom, properly restored him. Uh, reconnected that relationship that did not happen uh, as a result Absalom rises up uh, he starts to garner favor he sets himself up at, as judge at the gates uh, where he's going to uh, you know uh, dispense justice to the people who have uh, problems kind of setting himself up as an alternate uh, authority and then ultimately creates a rebellion uh, uh, against uh, David and then the word comes from David, hey, Absalom has risen up. A lot of people are with him. They're coming for you. And you don't really have a choice at this point but to get out of town. And so David, who is king, think about it. He is king. He has had all these victories. He has had all this power. But power is only as good as the people that are willing to give it to you. And when they take it away from you, you don't have as much power anymore. And now... Uh, he is literally running down from the palace across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. He is on the run. And it is that context that brings us to this um, uh, chapter 3, or, or Psalm 3. And uh, one person, uh, one commentator wrote, it says, How ironic that the David who has promised the nations in Psalm 2 is fleeing his son in Psalm 3. Delighting in the instruction of the king who reigns in heaven. We saw that in Psalm 1 uh, in the, in the, and Psalm 2. Is obviously no guarantee of a trouble-free life. So this, I think, it's probably a morning psalm. But I would say it's a Monday morning psalm. Right? <laughs> Victory in Jesus has faded away that you sang on Sunday. And now here it is Monday morning. And everything is going sideways. And it's not looking good. And that is where we find David. So let's jump on in to verse one. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. How many people are being felt to attack him? Many, 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 many is what it says three times. He just is feeling the weight from everyone, from all sides, attacking him. And people are mocking him, saying, God is not going to get him out of this one. There is no salvation for him in God. Uh, we feel that way sometimes, right? You wake up in the morning, and all you can think about is the negativity of the day. You know the work that it's going to take to get you through that day. You know the stress that's going to be involved. You know it's just not looking good. And... You know, 99% of your body just wants to roll over and go back to sleep and hope it's different when you wake up. 
Uh, it's usually not different when you wake up, just in case you didn't know. Um, but as is often the case, the best antidote for the fears that just come crashing in, and often those fears are actually lies from you know, our accuser, uh, the best antidote for that is to start speaking truth. And even more so, if you can speak truth about God, then you're on the right track. And that's what happens in verse 3. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. He reminds himself, you know, God has already shown himself to be faithful to me. He has already been with me as I slayed giants. He has already been with me as I killed animals that were a threat. He has already been with me to bring me from the last of the sons to the place of being anointed king. He has already been with me in my struggles with Saul. He could look back over his life and see all those times when God had been with him. And all he had to do was simply remind himself of those true things to say, you know what? You are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. And I cried to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Verse five. I lay down and slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. The very fact that he has woken up for that day tells him, you know, God has brought me to today. I didn't get killed in my sleep. Could have happened. God has brought me to this day. So therefore he can do what? He can get me through this day. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. It's pretty clear that he's putting his trust in the Lord. Now, I've skipped over a, a couple of things and I should go back. One of the other firsts for this psalm is, if you'll see uh, in most texts, at the end of verse 2 where it says, Many are saying of my soul there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. This little inst instruction, there's some debate about what it means, but most people would say it's, it's a little pause, a musical pause, a let's think about it time. Uh, let's reflect on what just happened. So as he is feeling all the weight of everything around him, he's going to pause and then it's after that pause of reflection that he can reflect on God being his source of strength and his source of protection. And he can better come up with those truths that he needs to tell himself. And then we have it again, Selah at the end of verse 4. And then he can, say, can properly say, you know, I made it through the night. I'm still here. I'm still standing. God's still God. And now I don't have to be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people.
when he starts off this psalm, he's focusing on the strength of his opponents. How many of them there are. How vocal they are. How accusatory they are. But look what happens in verse 5 when he says, I woke again. The Lord sustained me. He's taken that pause. He's reflected. Now he's spending more and more time thinking about who God is. And the more he thinks about who God is, the less he has to think about what his enemies are. The more truth he speaks about God, his strength, his power, his ability to sustain, the strength of his enemies just has to fade. And that's, that's one of those things that might be so obvious, but the thing we focus on makes a difference. So if we spend all of our time focusing on just how bad our circumstances are, we're going to get really good at thinking about bad, how bad our circumstances are. Practice does reinforce things. So if you spend your time thinking about all your badness, you're going to get really good at that. It's going to be really easy for you to click off all your troubles. The old thing about, you know, count your many blessings sounds cliche, but this is the opposite of that. When you think about who God is, how he's been there for you, focus more and more on who God is, then all that other stuff fades away. Then you have the right perspective to get going to your day. And then you can truly say, verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord and blessing be on your people. God is the one who provides that way of escape. God is the one who fixes all this. God is the one who, to use a military language, he's going to strike your enemies on the cheek. God is, a, you know, it, I can't think of anything more painful than to have your teeth broken. Uh, that's, that's just not a good feel. But that's, you know, he's, that's where he goes. You know, God's in charge of all that, right? We don't have to worry about that. A morning psalm. So the next time you're waking up in the morning and your day seems just daunting. And we all have those, right? Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're probably more frequent than we would like. But we could be thankful, first of all, that we literally don't have people that are runners from our homes and that we really didn't have to camp out in the wilderness last night. But God did wake us up. He did bring us to this day and he can bring us through this day just like he did David. And no matter how big our enemies are, God is way bigger than they are. A good morning psalm. Psalm 4. Good place to take a drink here. Any comments on Psalm 3, by the way? Yeah, Jim. Just a quick one. When he makes that transition to not being worried anymore, he's magnified the number of enemies, right? He's... Yeah. of thousands of men. But it's not a matter of degree. It's not that God is greater. It's just there aren't enough superlatives in the world. He's the greatest. There's, there's no contest. Yeah, the difference between um, how bad things are and God is always going to be infinite. infinite. Crazy. Uh, a commentator put it pretty succinctly. When a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force 
The force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. Psalm 4. Again, in my Bible, it has uh, several uh, pieces of commentary there to the choir master. Um, Not only is this to be with music, but it says to be with stringed instruments. It also says a psalm of David. We don't necessarily get um, a historical context on a particular occasion like we did with uh, chapter 3. But again, the editor has put these things together. um, And uh, I think you'll see that it makes sense. Uh, Some people have said that uh, this is a psalm of lament. Uh, People have clustered the psalms in different categories. Uh, We've talked briefly about messianic psalms. Uh, There's psalms of lament where you just are pouring out your heart to God. Um, Some people say this is somewhat lament, but also uh, he transitions quickly to it being a psalm of confidence. Uh, So it kind of bridges uh, some of those genres. Verse 1, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Uh, Again, you you get the idea that uh, there is distress there, uh, but he's turning to God. Uh, You've heard me and delivered me in the past. Hear me and deliver me now. Uh, As we'll see in verse 2, on this particular occasion, it's not so much his life that's at jeopardy, but now he's worried about his reputation. O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? In other words, he's calling out to these people around him, They are listening to the lies that people are telling about him. His honor is at stake. His reputation is being affected. Have you ever been falsely accused for something? You can show your hand. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Have you ever known someone who's been falsely accused of something? It can be brutal. It can make no sense. I saw this when I was uh, about 16, 17. Uh, We had a small youth group. We had a church, uh, maybe just a little smaller than Covenant, pretty active youth group. Um, We would do mission trips every year. Um, We had a core discipleship uh, group of uh, students. And um, out of that, out of that six or seven core discipleship group, um, there were was myself, uh, two became pastors, and one became a pastor's wife. Uh, it was a great group. We were in the process of doing our discipleship and prep for um, our youth mission trip. Something weird happened. Some weird like notes started showing up in the church that seemed to um, 
attack the reputation of our youth pastor. Um, and it seemed to indicate that there was maybe some sort of liaison, for lack of a better word, happening with someone in the church. Uh, but it was written in such a way that it seemed like it was coming from the perspective of someone in the youth group. These kept trickling out over the course of several weeks. It all looked like they were coming from my best friend. They were coming at times when only he could have done it. They were written in such a way where it sounded like uh, he might have had an extra grind. Um, it looked like he was falsely accusing our youth pastor of something with this woman. It was all pinned on him. There was an ultimatum to the youth group. Either come forward and confess or our trip is canceled. Trip was canceled. And about two weeks later, they found out that this woman herself, who was disturbed, had been writing these in the hopes of kind of garnering some sort of attention. But my friend, I mean, he was he's a high schooler. He was a great guy. Um, he was one of, the, one of the ones who went on to be a pastor. Still is. But it was horrible. It was horrible. People were coming to me wanting to know what I knew and trying to get you know, some sort of proof that he was in the wrong. Um, it, was, it was horrible. Um, and that's not just childhood stuff. Um, it still happens today. People say things that are hurtful. Um, and you want to rage against it. I mean, how can you not in some ways? One commentator said about this. Now, pay attention to what David says in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now, speaking in Old Testament terms, he's not talking about, you know, he doesn't have the fully developed Pauline theology that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. What David's saying here is, I'm righteous. I'm a pretty good guy. I don't deserve this. Right? One commentator said, though, is there such a thing as a totally righteous sufferer? Is anyone ever really incident, innocent? The answer is, of course not, unless we're thinking of the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. But none of us is ever utterly innocent. But there are nevertheless times of relative innocence in which evil people really do heap injustices on us. There are times when we are falsely accused. At other times we are slandered. Someone may want to advance himself by getting us out of the way, or an attack may be occasioned by pure envy. So, yeah, none of us is perfect. None of us is truly righteous in this context. But we can be falsely accused, and it does hurt. 
So when he says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? Uh, How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He is pleading to these people. Don't believe this mess that you're hearing. Verse three, but I know there's that pause. Okay, Selah, verse three. But I know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. As he's reflecting, trying to encourage his people, don't believe this stuff. But then he takes his pause and says, you know what? I am here because God put me here. I am in this place because this is a place God has for me. There's some security in that, that knowing God knows your circumstances. He knows it's not good. He knows it feels bad. But he's still God and he's got you here. And more importantly, he's still got you. Verse four, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So this is interesting. Now we pick up... uh, this same phrasing in uh, Ephesians 6. Or is it 5? Maybe 4. Anyway, the same... Blame it on the Sudafed. The same, um, the same concept, be angry and don't sin, right? We've, always, we've all heard, don't let the sun go down in your anger, that sort of thing. One commentator says... Yes, be angry could mean that. But it might also be taken to mean tremble. Tremble. Tremble as you reflect on who God is, what God's stake in this is, and as you reflect on not only how God wants to take care of this, but also what God's done for you, that again starts to level the playing field and you can... Let God have his way with this situation so that you don't have to take things into your own hands. Selah. And then it's verse five. And Pastor Bobby's been telling us the Christian life gets pretty basic. Trust God, worship him. So what he's, what's, the, what's the fix he's, he says here? Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. You know, habits, we could elevate it and call them spiritual disciplines, but they're basically just good habits. We develop habits so that the inertia of those habits will carry us through pure repetition through those times when we don't want to do the habit. What does he say? You know, with all this stuff that's going around, he's worried about his reputation. So you know what? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to bring the right sacrifices, which would mean with the right heart. I'm going to put my trust in the Lord. That's what I've been doing all the good days. I guess I'll do them on the bad days. You keep doing what God has commanded you to do. Whether it feels like a great day or not, you just keep doing it. And that's actually what pulls you through it. Verse 6. There are many who will say, who will show us some good? 
Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Um, there are many who say, hey, who's going to help us? Who's going who's to get us out of this? Well, for those who have been speaking the truth to themselves about who God is and what he's done for them in the past, it'll be pretty obvious. We turn to the Lord. We ask him to shine his face upon us, to look at us, to look at our circumstances. That's where our help's going to come from. I love this verse seven. It says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The joy that the Lord can put in your heart can exceed anything circumstantial. This grain and wine abound. More than, more than us, you know, we are isolated. Uh, there's not a lot of, of uh, big-time agriculture around us. Um, uh, Merritt's got relatives that raise all the big crops, you know, where they're farming tens of thousands of acres, and you're really tied into the cycle of the harvest. Uh, we're kind of immune from that now. We can get pretty much whatever we want whenever we want it. Um, but for them, that harvest time, when the grapes were in, when the wheat was in, when everything, that was when all the festivals happened because there probably wasn't a lot of excess any other time. But that was all circumstantial. That was everything that was happening around you. And he's saying, it's not what happens around you, it's what happens in you. That the joy that the Lord can put in your heart outshines the most bounteous harvest you could ever imagine. So as he's reflecting all, the, all this, I said that this was kind of an evening psalm. What is a cumulative weight of that truth having on him? In verse 8, he says, In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. And I think that's interesting that he divides that up. I'm going to lie down which sometimes that's just, you know, it's almost like you're submitting. You know, I, I've done all I can do. There's, there's nothing left for me to do but to lie down. And I know sometimes the reluctance for me to do that is because I keep, I'm already starting to creep in about, if I lie down, then the morning is even closer. And here I go again. Right. So this very active submission that I'm going to I'm going to lie down. I'm going to say I'm done. I'm going to stop my own efforts. and I'm just going to lie down. And he says, and I'm going to sleep. I talk with so many people who have difficulty sleeping and and it, it's 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 not good. Uh, people really need sleep. Um, we all need more sleep. I, I'm horrible with my sleep but this this rest that that you are just devoting yourself to God saying I'm going to lie down and I'm going to sleep because for you alone O Lord make me dwell in safety all of my hopes are in you 
We've talked off and on about uh, different cults and so forth. Um, the extra things that they add, all the other things you have to do, the, the hope that you have to have in your own efforts. Um, and we know that anytime you add something to Jesus, you've messed up. We've heard that lately. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I'm depending on you for all of it. Um, So we have our evening song. I think the editor knew what he was doing, putting those uh, beside each other. And I think it wouldn't be a bad habit, so to speak, for a while to maybe start your day with Psalm 3 and end it with Psalm 4. And see what God makes of that. All right, I'll pause. Comments?